We have witnessed the stories of people who have responded to the love of the Lord Jesus. Kids, adults. And baptism is not just some little ritual that we go through. It is a sign, a symbol of the powerful love of the Lord Jesus that removed every barrier, every obstacle, every hindrance. And he says to everybody in the world, come. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet responded to the Lord Jesus, he's removed every barrier. And he says to you, I want to forgive you. I want to love you. I want to fill you with hope and meaning and purpose. Will you let me love you? That's what the cross is all about. You don't have to lay down another night wondering what could happen to you if you should die. You don't have to have another question about the guilt in your heart and mind. You don't have to struggle with the fear and uncertainty of of what's going to happen to you later on. All you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I turn from my sin. Will you bow your heads with me? If there's anybody here like that, right now, this very moment, this very instant, why don't you say, Lord Jesus, I'm not going to run from you anymore. Cleanse me of my sin. Come into my heart and life. Make me your child. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the freedom that's found in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the release of fear and guilt and anxiety that comes by being loved by Jesus. And Lord, I just pray how my heart um, is broken this morning in a good way because I know that you're seeking and saving the lost today. And I just pray that nobody, nobody will leave this place without the certainty of their relationship with Jesus today. God, I pray that you'll do it. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for baptism. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your word. Thank you for one another. Thank you, oh God, for all that you've done for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, fellowship. Good to see you this morning. I am always deeply moved by baptisms to see what uh, God has done in the hearts and lives of of people. It is unbelievable. And I hope we never get over the cross. Amen? Don't ever get over that. Don't Don't ever get over that. I think sometimes in our walk in relationship with God, we get so concerned about um our maturity, and sometimes maturity is a, is a cold word for not talking about what it means to know Christ anymore. We get on to these other subset of things that we forget to hold the cross up high. And while I'm kind of like into that, let me just say a little warning to those of us who are Bible church people. That's our Achilles heel, believe it or not, that sometimes we can get so deep into the discipleship content, we forget about the gateway to heaven. And let's keep talking about Jesus. Let's keep talking about his greatness and his love. Well, I'm embarking on a new series today. And by the way, I want to add to what Joe said. If you're here as a visitor, thank you for coming. We want to welcome you and thank you for being here. And we trust that if there's any way that we can be of help and encouragement to you, uh, I say this every Sunday, but I really mean it from the bottom of our hearts. Please let us know. Please let us know. Sometimes people will slip into a church with needs and then they'll slip out. And they'll say, well, you know, nobody connected with me. Um, Well, you know, I say this not defensively. Only God is omniscient. And uh, so if 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 you have needs and a way in which we can come alongside of you, let us know. And we would uh, really love to do that. Love to do that. For the next five weeks, we're going to be in a series on faith. In a series on faith. I've entitled the series... uh, this is not original with me. 
Uh, many people have been using this expression. I've entitled the series, God's Hall of Fame. And we're going to park in the Hebrews chapter 11 for the next five weeks. And we're going to talk about faith. I suppose you, you're wondering, well, Crawford, why, why are you talking about faith? I got to tell you, as I've told you before, you know, in a, in a very real sense, you know, the way I choose messages is I, I bounce it off of, of some of our leaders and our, our worship team. But honestly, I just go before the Lord and pray and, th- and say, Lord, what, what would you have me to teach and to share? So I uh, feel led to talk about faith, faith. I suppose another subtext to this, another reason why we need to press into faith is because there it seems to be in this season, not just here at our church, but everywhere I turn, there seems to be this haze of uncertainty. This haze of uncertainty, this haze of fear. And I find that we're playing it safe. We're frightened about tomorrow. We're uncertain about next month. And we, we, we can ratchet it back. You know, and then we get into this thing where, where we begin to live a defensive Christian life. And there's nothing supernatural about what we do, how we think, how we act, how we respond. The Christian life is not about predictability. Uh, you know, and I hate to say this, but I, I was thinking about this this morning. All of us want a predictable life. How many of you would like to have life a little bit more predictable? Every last one of us. I like to have some certainty. I like to have predictability. I like to know, well, this is definitely going to happen this day. There are not going to be any surprises. Everybody's going to act right. There's not going to be any curveballs. You know, God hasn't called us to live that way. And so I want to say to every last one of us, if you're looking for a certain life, you're not going to get it. So give it up. Give it up. Life is always going to be uncertain and particularly the Christian life. The reason why faith is so important for believers is that faith demonstrates the reality of a supernatural God to a watching world. So your life and my life is a laboratory for the work of God. And that's why faith is so important. We're never going to live the Christian life apart from faith. Let's say a few things by way of introduction. Faith in the Bible is always a verb, even when it's a noun. I know, the English teacher's going to write me, Crawford, you're teaching our children wrong things about grammar. But faith in the Bible is always a verb, even when it's a noun. What do you mean by that? That faith is always moving us forward. Faith was never meant to be theoretical. It's never meant to be just purely intellectual. And I know that there is something called the body of faith, the body of truth, and we will use faith, your faith, as synonymous to creeds and what we intellectually see to. But really, faith in the Bible is God's engine. It's God's engine. There's no movement in the Christian life apart from faith. And I just think we all need to accept that reality, that faith is a verb. And I like to say on a personal level, in terms of of, of the driving force behind all that I want to say, I want to say this to all of us here, and that is that if we never do more than we think we can do, we will always do less than we should do. Thus the reason for faith. If you only live a predictable life, if you only do the things that you think you can do, there's nothing supernatural about you. There's nothing inviting about your life. There's nothing compelling about your Christianity. There's, there's, there's nothing God about us. If you only just do the things that you can do, you'll never do the things that you should do. And that's more than just a statement. That, that summarizes from a relational perspective what I call the transactional reality of faith. It pushes us beyond the norm and where, where we are. Now, I also have to say this too, and I'm going to come back to this. Faith presupposes opposition. Faith presupposes opposition. You, you, you don't have biblical faith unless you are opposed. It's the same as courage. You're courageous for something. Courage is always defined within the context, context of risk. 
That's why you're courageous. There is a risk. Faith is the same thing in a, in a different way. Faith is always defined in the context of opposition. If you're not opposed, you're not exhibiting faith. That's the reason why we have faith. Because something is against me. The predictable is against me. The circumstances, they're against me. My reality, there is a gap between here and there. And this is uncertain here. This is coming against me. And I really want us to understand that. We're, We're great at articulating the intellectual side of faith. But I want to encourage you, if you are struggling, if you are feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling as if the odds are against you, that's good. Seriously, I'm not being cute or smug here. That is good. Because faith always presupposes that you're being opposed. And you're never going to, and I want to say this to young people here. One of the, one of the things we, 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 we don't do with our kids is to teach them the reality of gap. That there'll never be a time in their life where they will have everything that they need, on the one hand, to do what they ought to do. And that's when God steps in. There's always forces in your life. My goodness, if I would have listened to the people in my background about who I could be and where I could be and what could happen in my life, I wouldn't be anywhere. So faith presupposes opposition. A.W. Tozer, the famed Christian thinker, revivalist, theologian, He was famous for this statement concerning faith. He says, faith is less about what you say you believe and more about how you behave on a consistent basis. So that's that's what biblical faith is all about. And as we walk through Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to be amazed that there's a lack of creeds here. There's a lack of articulation and framework about, you know, these theological insights. We're going to see people who are in the verb position. We're going to see behavior, movement, how people act. Now, let me give you a few general observations about Hebrews chapter 11 before I read the text for the first message here. I'm going to make three general observations about this passage. And I would really love for you this week and maybe even this afternoon to read this text. In fact, I want to challenge you to read it every single day for a week, to read Hebrews 11. And actually, I want you to read Hebrews 11, chapter, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 3, because that's where the block of thought really, really ends. Three general observations. Now, when you read Hebrews chapter 11, we, we are very cute in our little moniker. We say, this is God's, this is God's hall of fame. Well... Yes and no. What, you, what, what I want to say here is that these are not the only people who are commended for their faith. These are examples of faith. Okay? So when you read Hebrews chapter 11, don't think that, oh, because others were excluded. No. Later on in the text, it says, and others. These are just examples of men and women who were commended for their faith. Which leads me to the second general observation. The word commend is used five times in Hebrews 11. And I want, I want a little sidebar here because we're going to come back to this all through this series. The exercise of your faith is not about the greatness of you and your faith. It's about the greatness of God. The emphasis in this passage is not just about great faith. The emphasis in this passage is about a great God. And so the word commend is used five times. And let me tell you, the Greek word commend is, we get the English transliteration martyr from this word. It is martyreo, martyreo. And really, that, that word means to bear witness. Now, this is remarkable. Remarkable. I could be on this one for the rest of the message. This is absolutely remarkable. What he's saying throughout Hebrews 11, by the use of this word, commend, martyreo, five times, what he's saying is this, when we exercise faith, get this, God points us out as models and examples of what pleases him. That's the reason why he holds up these people in this great hall of fame or hall of faith. When we exercise our faith, It's not that we're witnessing to God, but God witnesses for us. 
God is the witness in Hebrews 11. We're not the witness. God is the witness in Hebrews 11. Martyreo. We're commended to God. It's as if he says with a huge smile on his face, that's my child. Tim believes God. Joe believes God. Brian believes God. Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. That's, that's my child. They believe me. Look at the stuff that they're going through and they're not wavering. They believe me. I read that. I thought of that. My new favorite commercial. You guys seen that commercial with the turtles on the couch? I love that commercial. The baby turtle. I don't even know what the commercial's about. See, <laughs> I used to love the turtles. And the baby turtle all of a sudden says, slow. And just say it again, slow. And daddy turtle says, that's my son. <laughs> you know, it had nothing to do with the message, but anyway, uh, I just love the commercial. God witnesses on our behalf, and that's the way you have to look at Hebrews 11. It is God boasting that his children are giving him glory despite the mess that they're going through. Unbelievable. And then third big observation setting this up is that Hebrews 11 is really about motivation. It's really about models to keep moving. Um, when you read the Bible, the chapter divisions are there ordinarily to help us, and they do help us. But I want to I make an observation here. Every once in a while, the chapter divisions cut off a block of thought. Now, most, most scholars believe that the finished thought of Hebrews 11 really is what we have in verse, uh, chapter 12 verse, up to verse 3. That's the point of Hebrews 11. I'll read it to you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are those witnesses? All the people that he just named in Hebrews chapter 11 and others. So great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings as close, uh, so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The key word is endurance there. He says, look, I've just given you these models and examples so that you don't give up, that you don't fail, that you don't cash it in. And then he gives the ultimate example in verse 2. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And here is the main, main line. The main purpose of Hebrews 11, I think it's wrapped up in this one purpose clause, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. It's as if God says in Hebrews 11, all right, I've given you all of this. I've named these great people. Now I'm holding up the Lord Jesus. Who told you you had the right to quit, Crawford? Who told you that? Who told you that you can coast? Who said that you ever have the privilege of doubting God? You just keep, keep moving. Now, having said that, today I want to talk about the certainty of our future. Hebrews 11 begins with that declaration. It begins with a declaration concerning the certainty of our future. It's as if the writer of Hebrews reaches out and he grabs his readers and he says, look, I just want you to hear this. I want you to know that your future is indeed certain. Let me read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. The writer says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of all received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. 
Verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to unpack Abel and I'm not going to unpack Enoch, although I'm going to refer to them, but I'm going to camp on verses 1 through 3 and then verse 6. Verses 1 through 3 and then verse 6. There are two things that I want to say today that really are the pillars of our faith that, that the writer of Hebrews starts with. The first thing that I want to say is found in verses 1 through 3, and that is that faith is our security. It is our security. And the second thing that I want to say from the text is that faith is our ambition. Faith is our security, but it is also our ambition. I'll explain that second one in a moment. First of all, faith is our our security, our security. And again, it's very important to understand that, that the writer of Hebrews is beginning his discussion, these biographical snapshots of great men and women of God by making a declarative statement. He's saying, I don't want you to be afraid of the future. He's saying basically that it is sure and it is certain. It is sure and it is certain. If you're constantly worried about tomorrow, you're not going to make any appreciable movement today. You will always be paralyzed if you're concerned about what's going to happen to you, where you're going to be, what's going to take place next. You will be paralyzed. You won't move. You'll have panic attacks. You'll have all kinds of situations. You'll be nervous. You'll always be an underachiever as far as God is concerned because the future looms large to you. And he begins by saying, hey, look, no matter what you're going through, your faith is your security. It is your your security. Technically speaking, verses 1 through 3, now we say that this is a definition of faith. Technically, this is not a definition of faith. It is a description of what faith does and how it works. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 through 3 is about. It's a description of faith, of what it does and how it works. Let me say a word about the word faith. About the word faith. The Greek word for faith is the word pistis. At least that's the one that's used here. Now, it means more than just intellectual assent. It means more than just believing something in your head. I want to argue from this text that that there is an emotional side of belief in this text. You're going to see this in a few moments when we get to verse 6, that there is an emotional side. There is a a, a personality side. Pistis is not just uh, my ability through deduction to agree that believing God is reasonable, although that's nothing's wrong with that. There's a place for apologetics. It is that, but it's deeper. The word pistis has more to do with a, with a commitment. It is a, is a belief that entrusts, a belief that gives over, a belief that does not question the stability of that upon which I'm believing. Um, it, it really could have been translated uh, a state of certainty with regard to belief. This is rock solid. So when we say we have faith, we're not talking about speculation. We're not talking about ambivalence. We're not talking about hope for, hope to in the sense of wishing. Pistis. Pistis. It's a total commitment of all that, that I am. And there's four descriptive things in these two verses, hang in there with me, concerning this faith. One is that it is a concrete faith. Look at the first part of verse one. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is concrete. It is not speculative. We'll get to this down in verse 6. You can't separate verse 6 from verse 1. We'll get there in a second. But let me just say this right now. This faith is sure. It is the assurance of things hoped for. It is concrete. Faith is to a Christian what a foundation is to a house. It gives confidence and assurance that it will stand. That it will stand. It is not shaky. It is the assurance 
It is the assurance. Uh, <laughs> Joe Rice was sitting in a, uh, our worship team meeting and had a great observation about this. I had heard this a number of times before, years ago, but he just brought it back to mind. The word assurance can really be taken as the title deed for what we're believing God for. The fact that God has placed faith in your heart to believe him for something is the title deed of his existence. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Secondly, there's the certainty of faith here in verse 1. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the word conviction of things not seen. The word conviction, there's a Greek word, elegmas, elegmas. And it means that by which things are proved, tested, in the sense of persuasion. In the sense of persuasion. I'm convinced that this is so. I'm convinced that this is right. I'm believing this not because it's like me going to Las Vegas or buying lottery tickets and then, you know, you know all things being considered, I've got a good possibility that I might win. No, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something that drives me to action. I'm convinced of this, and I will stake my life on this. It's the same concept that's found in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, when Paul said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That persuasion has come by him exercising faith in the past and that confidence that he's going to keep moving, it is that conviction. And part of the problem that I have with those of us who, who, who want to be all things to the world, we don't want to be distinct or different, I, I just can't stand the weak posture that we have as Christians. Now, I don't mean to be in your face about what we believe, but if anybody in this culture, if anybody on your job, if anybody in your community ought to be living life with a sense of certainty, it's us. What are you convinced of? Do you know how many Christian lives have plateaued because there's just been a milk toast attitude? We've elevated reason to the level of idolatry. And so the writer begins, and I just want you to know something before we get started, because I'm going to give illustrations here in chapter 11. I'm going to tell you about this, but I want to describe faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not not seen, not seen. And so this faith is an intrinsic proof in our hearts that this will be so. Now I want to raise the obvious question. Okay, Crawford, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know that what I'm believing God for what are we believing him for? Could you be wrong? Yes, you can be wrong. Now, I got a part with about two-thirds of the commentaries that I've read on this text, and many of the guys who I've read on this passage have taught me, and I admire them, but I, I've got to depart from them. Uh, a good number of the commentaries will say, well, the only way you can know is because if it's written in the Word of God. I say that that is true, but I also say that there are other things because when it comes to the word things here, it, it's not just the transcendent statements of God. I also believe that there are things in our lives that are not directly referenced in the Bible that God is calling us to believe in for, having to do with his will in our lives. And so the question is, the way that we know that we're believing God for the right thing are these three things. Number one, it is the word of God. It is the Word of God. If you're trusting God for something that conflicts with the Word of God, you're on your own, Jack. It is the Word of God. However, in terms of God's daily will and purpose and plan for our lives, I think, secondly, that's where, that's where, that's where the consistency of desire bathed in prayer needs to be looked at. If there's something on your heart that just will not release you, it keeps visiting you. It keeps knocking at you. And the more you pray about it, the more it visits you. Then you need to take a look at that. And then thirdly, there is the work and witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life. 
It says, Crawford, you have to do this. This was so when I left Campus Crusade for Christ to come here to be your pastor. I could have stayed there, I didn't have to go. But there was this consistent throbbing in my heart that this is what God wanted me to do. And you move with confidence. So the presence of faith is the confidence that God will do what he promised and keep his word. Now let me say a word about the word things here. Things. This is the, this is the word that pulled me away from just, I don't want to say just, the word of God is everything, but I think it's broader in this text. And by the way, when you read the snapshots of what these men and women were believing God for, It had to do with their initiative and what the Holy Spirit was initiating in their lives. And so he uses the word things. Things. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And the reason I think he uses the word things is is whatever God wants to do in your life. And I think there's a bigger issue here. The bigger issue here is that I think there's a, there's a, the subtext is that there's a little bit of a warning here. The subtext here is that I think God is saying, as my dad told me years ago, he's pretty passionate about this. I remember him telling me all the time, son, don't you ever let anybody tell you what you can and cannot be. But you let people tell you what you can and cannot be. And there's a little history there. I think it's because he came, grew up during Jim Crow, and everybody was always putting the lid on uh, what an African-American could be or do and this kind of thing. And Pop was pretty passionate as he raised his three kids. Don't you ever let anybody tell you what you can or cannot be. God, God determines that. And I think it's a little bit of the subtext here. When he says things, I don't care what it might be. Whatever God wants to do in your life, he can pull it off. He can pull it off. And I have to say to us, be very careful. I know that we take our test and we listen to our consultants and our counselors, and I don't have anything wrong with I don't think anything wrong with that. I think we need to take our profiles and take our tests and this kind of thing. But be very careful of typecasting what God can or cannot do in and through your life. The things hoped for. God can do some pretty special thing. In fact, uh, every Christian's mission statement should be to glorify God by believing him to experience and accomplish everything he has in store for me. I'm never going to tell God how to use me. I'm never going to tell God what I can and cannot do. My first place to begin is on my face before him. He is the God of the impossible. And I know I'm being really, you know, kind of parsing every word here. But notice he says, things hoped for, they are in the future. That's the nature of faith. Things not seen, they are visibly not evident. And that's what faith is all about. We don't have faith for stuff that we can measure. We don't have faith for stuff we can put our arms around. That's not faith. Our faith is expressed when it's in the future and it's not visible yet. I love what Dr. J. Oswald Sanders says. He says, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. Now, there's also, under this stability there, number three, there's the community of faith, and he holds this community up. And he's going to talk about that in snapshots later on in the passage. But notice what he says in verse 2. He says, for by it, the people of all receive their commendation. He's going to give us illustrations of that commendation. Matereo, God says, hey, there's, hey, there's my son. It's my daughter that believes me. What are you trying to say here? I believe that what he's saying to all of us is that chill. Look, 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 you, you're not the only one that ever had to trust God. Faith is the legacy of the people of God. That's our legacy. That's our heritage. It's what we receive and it's what we leave. It's faith. In every peoples of God, no matter when they live, the enduring statement that they make to the next generation is the fact that they believe God in their generation. It is the legacy of the people of God. 
And again, as I said, we're not the only ones. By the way, by the way, the gap between where we are and what God wants us to do is called faith. And the people of God embrace that gap. They embrace that gap. I don't have what I need. That's true. But God has everything that I need. That's true. That's true. Number three, and number four, there's a continuity of faith in verse three. He makes a statement about God, and he lodges this in history. He says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Now, I don't think he's mentioning this for us to get into this whole cosmological argument and the argument of, uh, you know, order and design, intelligent design. I think that's true, but I don't think that's why he's mentioning this. I think what he's saying is something about the continuity of God. The continuity of God in terms of how he works. And what, what are you trying to say? He's saying, well, look, look, look. Theologically, God is, is all about making the invisible visible. Creation is an illustration of that. And that God always works in our lives by making the invisible visible. 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 So we're becoming more like him and people see the history of God. That's how he works. God is the God of making the invisible visible. You understand me? And the fact that you're not where you'd like to be, that's no big deal. The world did not exist, and he spoke it. God concentrates on that. He makes that, makes that happen. So that's the continuity of our faith. Well, this security, this stabilizing faith, but then secondly, he talks about faith being our ambition, our ambition. He draws a little line in the sand, and he uses Abel and he uses Enoch to set this up, and I don't want to get into that. I just want to land on verse 6 here. And before he proceeds even further, he says, now, wait a minute. You, you need to hear this, Crawford. You really need to hear this. What you need to hear is that faith pleases God. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 is this telling verse. And I, 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 Paul says, given the urgency of our lives, the fact that we can be gone at any, any moment, we can either die or be translated out of this world, he underscores what the ambition of every follower of Jesus Christ should be. He says, the English Standard Version interprets it this way. He says, and we make it our aim. Other translations, and I really like this better, he says that we make it our ambition to please the Lord. So he begs the question, he says, you want to please me, Crawford? Doubt has never pleased me. Duplicity has never pleased me. You want to please God? Crawford, I got, I got to tell you this. If you want to please me, you want to please me, you, you, you are going to have to believe me. Believe me. And by the way, he's saying two things, I believe, in verse 6. He's saying faith is real and faith is always rewarded. Faith is real and it's always rewarded. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe. The word believe there, and I don't mean to be giving you a Greek lesson this morning, but it's, it's very important, the tense of this verb. The, the, the tense of this verb is not an imperfect tense, or it's not, some, it is not, it's not a belief that we continue to grow in. That's not, the, that's not the tense here, although there is a side of faith that we need to grow in. I'm going to give you seven Steps to strengthen your faith, click them off in a few moments. There is a side of that that we need to keep growing in. 
That, that's true. But I gotta, you got to understand this. The tense of this verb is the aorist tense. What's important about that? It's not a simple past tense. It's a historic decision. It's almost like a crisis. You, you have to decide that you're going to once and for all historically believe God. And by the way, I have found that God uses challenges in my life, consequences in my life to, for me to make a historic decision. God uses lack in my life for me to make a historic decision. God brings me to crossroads to make a historic decision. And some of you are right there today. You need to make a historic decision. He says, if you come to me, you cannot come to me uh, wishy-washy. You cannot come to me doubting me. You cannot come to me uh, wondering anything. You're going to have to make your decision that you're going to believe me. You're going to believe me. So he says that this faith is real. We're not believing fiction. We're believing reality. He says that if you would come or draw near to God, must believe that he exists. Now, when you study your Bible, study words in their context. Don't, uh, I used to, for a long time, read this and say, well, what he's talking about, God exists, believe that he is. Uh, you know, yeah, that, that there is a God and all these arguments for the existence of God and this kind of thing. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he might be hinting at that, but when you read this in his context, he's talking about you got to believe that God is real and personal. That he's personal. And you got to you got to believe that an omnipotent God can be omnipotent in your circumstances. You got to believe that an all-knowing God can be all-knowing in your circumstances. You, 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 you got to believe that an all-merciful God can be merciful in your circumstances. you you got to believe that. And so if you're going to come to me, you got to believe that I am real. I, I'm palpable. I, I'm, I'm here. I'm, 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 I'm more real than the air that you breathe. I'm more real than the person that you're sitting next to. I'm more real than your glasses, your hair, or lack of hair. Or I'm more real than your jacket. I, I'm there. I am real. Don't come to me if you don't believe that I'm real. Faith is not theoretical. Faith is not lodged in our theological ideas about God. But it's lodged in the reality of our great God. You follow me? You follow me? So you've got to believe that it is, it is the Greek word, esteme, that, that he, he is. He is. But he's real. He has everything that we need. He has a purpose and a plan. He cares about every area of our lives. You've got to come realizing that he is, but you also, he's real. You also got to come realizing that he rewards. Look at the verse again. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What is the reward here? <laughs> What's the reward here? Go back to verse 5. Read your Bible in context. This is the reason why he uses Enoch as an illustration. Verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken... He was commended having pleased God. You know the story of Enoch, don't you? Yeah, Genesis 5, 24. Enoch bypassed death. He so pleased God that God drew him into his presence. May I suggest to you that the ultimate reward for our faith is not necessarily just receiving what we're trusting him for, although I believe that. The ultimate reward for our, our faith is God himself. It's God himself. He is a reward of those who seek him in the sense that when we, go, when we go to God, we go to get him, to bring him to the challenges of our faith. That's what he's talking about. 
I am the one that will reward you. I'm the one that will step into your lack. I'm the one that will step into that problem in your marriage. I'm the one that will step into your bad finances. I'm the one that will step into the uncertainty of your future. So we go to get God to bring him to bridge the gap and we walk over him to get to where he wants us to be. That's what he's talking about here. It is, it, it's, it's like a little boy that's over his head. He says, look, I need to go get my dad. So he says, I am the rewarder of those who seek me. He's your reward. We're going to read later on in this series. Not everything that you're believing God for will take place in your lifetime. And that's okay. Not everything you're trusting him for will happen during your lifetime. And that's okay. But what this text tells us is the assurance of God because of the nobility of believing him. That's what it's all about. Now, before I land a plane here and call Tim and the group up, I, I wrestled with doing this. There's a side of me that wanted to give these seven keys to strengthening your faith at the end of the series. But then I thought, no, let me do it at the very beginning. And if need be, I'll come back to this. And let me just click these off. I'm going to give you seven keys to strengthening your faith. And you might want to write these down and keep them in your Bible, keep them nearby. Because I don't care how, how much you've walked with the Lord. I get scared. I get overwhelmed. I look at things. I go, God, how in the world are we going to get out this mess? I'm there. But these seven things have meant so much to me. Very simple. One is accept the reality of opposition. I mentioned that earlier. Stop fighting the fact that you have to fight. Newsflash, you're going to be doing that until your last breath. There's always, forever, going to be stuff coming up against you. We don't live in heaven and board down here. There's a real devil. There's real stuff in our lives. So accept the reality of opposition. Number two, stand ready to resist. And let me say this as your pastor, please. Well, I do mean this as a mild rebuke to some of us here. Some some of us listening to me, you have never been made to hang in there for a while. You've always been bailed out. And that's the reason why you're weak today. Stop running. Stop running. Stop ditching. Stand ready to resist. Ephesians chapter 6. Put the armor of the Lord on. (laughs) Love that little shepherd boy. Put my armor on. I love it. Shield of faith. Hold it up. Hold it up. So the second one is, is stand ready to resist. Thirdly, keep your mind focused and filled with truth. With truth. We've got to have an intake of this book, the Word of God, so that we think right about our lives. We think right about situations. And that fuels our faith, thinking right and understanding the Word of God. Number four, embrace the growth pains. What do you mean by that? Well, the condition of our faith is the key indicator of the level of our spiritual maturity. You can tell me all kinds of things. You can, you can be a Bible brain. You can be a theologian. You can have all, but that doesn't that mean anything. This stage in my life, I am not impressed with people who are in umpteen gazillion small groups that read uh, 3,000 uh, commentaries and Christian books and has their theology together because the one indicator in the Bible of maturity is the condition of your faith. Your ability to believe God. That is the key indicator of our maturity. And so, just as you don't stop working out because you're sore, you keep pressing into those growth planes. Let God stretch you. Number five, stay in God's presence. Stay in his presence. Keep trusting him. Keep praying. Keep thinking, keep believing, keep dealing with the issues in your own heart, your intimacy with God, 
Stay in his presence. Number six, associate with faith-filled people. I just need to tell you this. Negative, critical Christians dismantle the faith of others. Stay away from them. And I got to tell you this. I avoid, I don't hang out long with critical, negative people. I love them because they're part of the church, this kind of thing, but I stay away from them. That will rape you of faith faster than anything else. And if you struggle with a critical spirit, you struggle with negativism, I want to encourage you to, to ask God to really begin to work in your heart. And number seven is the bottom line. Act. Faith is not for discussion groups. Faith is not for Bible studies. Faith is something you do. And I want to ask you today, what step of faith are you taking? What steps of faith are you taking? What are you believing him for? What are you acting on? What has he placed on your heart to do? I'm going to have you stand and I'm going to ask Tim and the team to come up and it's a wonderful closing song. Uh, I never heard it before. He sent the words to me the other day. I'm going to ask our elders and any of our leaders or staff who are here this morning, I'm going to ask you to come up front here. And as I was praying about this this week, I, 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 just, I just want us to pray for those of you who are struggling with your faith. Maybe you've got a faith challenge. And I, I tell you, I, I go through this myself. Maybe you've got a faith challenge. Maybe you're weak in faith and fear has gripped you or there's something that you're, you know, you're just over your head about something. And you, you would say, Crawford, would you guys, would you guys pray for us? I'm going to slip down. I'll be here. And Tim and the team will sing this song, lead us in this song. But we want to pray with you. Don't, don't walk out of here. Sometimes, you know, you need the hands and touch in the heart of others to call on the Lord for you when you're bridging a difficult time in your life. So if that's you, you come.